be looking at Matthew 17, the last part of Matthew 17. In fact, we'll look at Matthew 17, verses 14 through 27. Does everyone have a Bible? You need to have your eyeballs plastered on Scripture. These aren't my words. These are the words of the living God. Matthew 17, we'll look at verses 14 through 27. In the year 1517, interestingly enough, same year, if you remember that date, that was the year Martin Luther nailed the 95 arguments, we often call theses, to the church door of Wittenberg, Germany. But that same year, there was a famous painter, you may have heard of Raphael. I uh, recently learned his last name, it's uh, Sanzio, Raphael Sanzio. He began this painting of Christ's transfiguration, you'll see on the screen there. But anyway, when he died in uh, just uh, a few years after that, in 1520, the painting wasn't finished. But Raphael had completed enough of it to, we could obviously understand what's going on in the painting. He's obviously an amazing painter, very highly gifted by God. But uh, he, he showed... In the painting here, Jesus on, on the mount with Peter, James, and John. You'll see him at the top of the painting. And, uh, of course, everything's just bathed in light. Uh, you know, Christ, was, as the Bible says, just shining really, really bright. Even his clothes were shining. But in the same painting, if you look at the bottom, it, I've highlighted the bottom here for you. Uh, in that same painting, at the very bottom, Raphael shows the other nine disciples were at the, somewhere at the bottom of the mountain trying to cast out a demon from this epileptic boy, uh, and of course they failed miserably. And Raphael's trying to portray that. And so through picture form, I think this, this is a great way of, of kind of summarizing the theme of, of today's passage, if you will, which is this, that, that uh, mountaintop experiences coexist with valleys. And it's only by the power of God that we can have victory or victories in our lives. In fact, somebody jokingly told me, or asked me at Equip Bible Conference, well, what are you preaching? Well, Matthew 17, oh, the transfiguration passes, that's great. So, so, so how, how's it going? I said, it's all downhill from here. Great, great way, it's a great pun, I thought. If you can laugh. But, uh, I mean, that's, that's the way it is, pretty much, so isn't it? I mean, these Here's Jesus with his three inner core disciples coming down off the mountain, and it was downhill when they got down. Down, down to the bottom it was a valley experience. In the first half of Matthew 17, we, we already saw this. It was recorded Jesus' transfiguration. But in the second half, what we'll look at today, it records the failure of the disciples who remained below there on that mountain. Whatever that mountain was, we don't know for sure. Actually, there's, uh, there's several failures in this text that I want to highlight for you. The first failure is in their exorcism. They, they could not exorcise the, the demon out of that epileptic boy. The second failure was to understand Jesus' words about his death and resurrection. And, and it wasn't the first time he'd mentioned this, but, but they got it wrong again. They, they did not fully understand. And the third failure involves Peter. Uh, and so Jesus uh, is going to use, he's going to talk to Peter in, this, in that third passage there. And, and uh, 
We're going to see that Jesus is willing to pay the temple tax. Peter didn't understand exactly what was going on. So what we're seeing in the, in the passage here is, is a pattern. I'm, I'm pointing these three failures out for you. You can see this pattern, and, and it's been going on for not just in chapter 17, but it's been going on for a while now where uh, there's understanding in the disciples' lives, but then there's also misunderstanding. So they'll understand a little bit more of the, the puzzle, and then they'll have some more misunderstanding. There's, there's progress that ends up being followed by failure. And this is a pattern we see throughout the Gospels here. It, 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 and by the way, lest you look at, at the disciples and say, <clears throat> you know, what does that have to do with me? Well, uh, it has a lot to do with you because it's your pattern as well. It's my pattern. It's my pattern. I'll, I'll, you know, God will be gracious to me and I'll, I'll gain a little bit of understanding and then I'll fail him. I'll gain a little bit more understanding and then I fail him. I gain a little bit more understanding of God and I fail him again. That is our pattern. It's your pattern. And so God is very gracious in revealing himself and his long-suffering with us when we fail. And and that's what we see here. So I want to look at these failures one by one. And the first failure is no power. (laughs) No power. Look at uh, Matthew 17, verse 14. Verse 14, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. So their failure was no power. No power. Uh, At first glance, when you look at the passage here, it seems surprising that the disciples are unable to heal this epileptic boy. Uh, Particularly when you take into consideration in Matthew chapter 10, they had uh, they had been involved in in some exorcisms. They had been able to cast out demons in Matthew 10. Uh, Jesus had given them authority to cast out evil spirits. And and that's exactly what they had already done. They had already experienced that power. But for some reason, they're not able to do it here. They're lacking in this power. They failed. And so the obvious question, which of course they themselves even ask, is why? Why are we lacking in this power? If you, You can see that in verse 19. They ask that question. Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus answers their question in verse 20, basically because of their little faith. Little faith is what Jesus says. Now it might be a a bit misleading. So when Jesus tells the disciples they have this little faith, you need to understand something. It's not a matter of quantity. 
When Jesus says little, it's not, he's not referring to a quantity. Uh, in, in fact, since he explains in the very next verse that even faith as small as a little teeny mustard seed can move mountains. So something as small as that it can, can accomplish great things for God. And by the way, that, that moving mountains is a proverbial phrase or expression of that time. The idea is you're able to overcome difficulties. If you can move mountains, you, you can overcome great obstacles, great difficulties. So the disciples must have at least had, had um, uh, you, know, you know, a little faith. Otherwise, why, why would they even bother to try to exercise the demon out of the little boy? So instead of referring to an, an, an inadequate amount of faith, Jesus is referring to a faith here that's deficient. It has nothing to do with their size of faith. It's a deficient faith. Their faith was not effective. It wasn't able to accomplish what Jesus was obviously able to do. Well, that brings me to a question I've been thinking of for some time now, is what is biblical faith? We've talked a lot about faith in this middle part of Matthew. So what is biblical faith? Well, it contains at least three elements. Okay, Number one, content. Content is important. You must believe something, okay? Faith is not, you know, emptying your mind of everything. No, that's not faith. Uh, Faith has content. You must believe something. But it's also a sense. What are you agreeing to? You have to agree to the content. Well, that also involves number three, trust. And in this case, you, you must believe in a person and his work. It's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please understand something. We we hear about faith all the time these days. You'll see heaps of books in the bookstore and so forth. But you need to understand that faith is only as good as its object. Okay, It's not just about faith. What what is the object of your faith? If your faith is in the wrong object, you've got a false faith that will let you down. It's a wrong object. And because of that wrong object, you have a false faith. So, the faith is not the crucial thing. It's the object of the faith, the content. And so, of course, you must believe in Christ. So the element of trust is what makes faith personal. Faith is, is not just some intellectual exercise. Faith is not some mechanical thing. You, you just go through motions. No, it's personal. It is that personal element that was lacking here with the disciples, uh, it appears they're just going through the motions. It, it, it become a mechanical thing, some intellectual thing for them. And, and in fact, Mark's account is helpful. He says they failed because they had not, uh, they hadn't supported their efforts by prayer. We read that earlier. They hadn't supported their efforts by prayer. They, I don't know if they thought, you know, hey, I can just do this on my own. We've done this, you know, that's usually the way we are. Hey, we've done this before. You know, I don't need to pray in this situation. And we just we go in guns blazing and fail. Well, that's what they did. And so the problem was that they were approaching the challenge with a formula. They're expecting the inevitable results to happen. And, and of course, that's not biblical teaching. Effective faith is a relationship with, in which you and I actually depend on God. It's a personal relationship. 
And it's not something you and I should take for granted. It's not something you and I can just go in with, with, uh, with, with you know, mechanical prayers or mechanical ways of doing things. It's not an intellectual exercise. There's a couple lessons I, I want us to gain from this particular event. Number one, to be effective in serving God, we need a continuing relationship with God. Unfortunately, these these disciples failed in this way. Now, of course, they had a relationship with Jesus Christ, but they were ineffective here. Uh, Jesus wasn't actually there with them, and they're just kind of going through the motions. And it's easy for our relationship to deteriorate into something that's just merely mechanical. Uh, we have this tendency in our physical relationships, and even worse yet, we have this tendency for our relationship with Christ and with God the Father to just become a mechanical intellectual exercise. And if you don't think so, you're fooling yourself. Because every one of us has this problem. And so because we had God's blessing sometime in the past, you know, we often think, well, that's just going to continue on in an unchanged way so long as we merely do the right things. You may even jump, you may even have jumped on the treadmill this morning you know, oh, oh, oh I've got to go to church. Well, you know, I need to read my Bible and pray because God's not going to bless me today if I don't do that. You jump on that performance treadmill. Hey, I've got to go to church because the Bible commands me to go to church. You know, I'm supposed to not forsake the assembling of myself together. Instead, I'm supposed to come and exhort one another to love and good works. So I've got to go to church. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray and whatever. Sadly, we can do those things without any real reliance on God. You can be an ambassador for Christ without any reliance on God. You can read your Bible without any reliance on the Holy Spirit to, to, to use His Word in your heart. We can do those things without true faith. And when we do, we fail badly, miserably, just as they did. So my friend, nothing good in itself can substitute this personal, continuing, trusting relationship with God. Okay? Don't ever think for one moment that just by going and doing something, it's going to fix your problems and and, and I'm going to have this continuing relationship going on. No, it doesn't work that way. Something you always got to do every day. Every day, it's a daily relationship and fellowship between you and God. So to be effective in serving God, we need a continuing relationship with Him. Number two, a second lesson is this. There are no shortcuts to spiritual authority. <laughs> no shortcuts. Oh, we love shortcuts, though, don't we? Constantly trying to find those things. We want the easy way out. Disciples must have been seeking some sort of a shortcut when they came to this epileptic boy. They must have been thinking about doing the right things you know, you know, maybe I need to say, maybe I need to say, uh, you know, uh, the blood of Christ in order to cast the demon out. Did, did you remember to say the blood of Christ, Peter? No, Peter wasn't there. But you know, you, you know, you know how that goes with some people. You know, oh, you forgot to mention the blood of Christ. That's why it failed. No, that's not. That's not it at all. It didn't work. They needed to go back to Jesus to learn why they had failed. Fortunately, they asked Jesus why. And when they did, they grew, didn't they? 
Jesus was gracious with them. He doesn't beat them up here. God's long-suffering. He's very gracious. He gives them more understanding. They're going to fail again later, by the way. And again, God will be gracious to them, give them more understanding. Then they're going to fail again. We're going to see them fail at Christ's death. Peter's going to fail. We're going to see that. And, you know, they continually get some understanding, and then they fail. Get more understanding and fail. But all along, God's long-suffering and gracious, as He always is. So my friend, remember, just because we fail one time doesn't mean that our lives are always going to be characterized by failure. It's not the case. It's not, it's not one strike and you're out for the rest of your life. And by the way, it's not three strikes either. Okay, That's, That applies for baseball, but not in the Christian life. God's very gracious, and there is great hope because that God is gracious. So we see their first failure was no power. But there's a second failure, a very uh, quick one here we'll look at, is there was little understanding. Little understanding. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Do you see their failure? Again, Jesus tells them what's going to happen. This is why we're going to Jerusalem. They didn't understand, which is why they're greatly distressed. If they understood what was going on, they would have rejoiced. So the second failure of the disciples in in this section is handled very briefly here, just two verses, probably because it's occurred before and and it's going to happen again. It's their failure to understand Jesus' prediction of his death and resurrection. Apparently, they understood the death part, which is probably why they're greatly distressed. But they certainly weren't understanding the resurrection part, were they? And here in Matthew 17, by the way, Jesus adds to what he had predicted earlier. Uh, If you remember back in chapter 16, he had said that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He just said that in the previous chapter. And they're still not getting it. Interestingly enough, there, there, is, there is one important difference from Matthew 16 to 17 here in those phrases. Jesus was, he had stressed the necessity of his work. It's something he must do. He used the word must. But here Jesus emphasizes the certainty of his death. In fact, he's replacing the word must with the word will. I will do this. It is is something that's going to happen. It is certain. You can see that in verse 23. He says, they will kill him and he will be raised. It is certain. Jesus knows his purpose in coming. He is coming to fulfill prophecy. He is coming to do his Father's will. And nothing is going to stop him. Well, did the disciples understand any of this? <laughs> like I said, I, th- I think they got the death part, which is why they're greatly distressed. But I, don't, I really don't think they got the resurrection part. Why would they be greatly distressed if they understand... Jesus is going to conquer Satan and sin and the power of death. He's going to rise again. I'm not going to stay in the grave. 
They wouldn't be greatly distressed if they had understood. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, it says they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So Mark 9 just comes out and says they didn't understand. We don't need to guess. (laughs) They clearly didn't understand. They had little understanding. They had no power. Failure number three. They had a, uh, Peter, I should say here, had a mistaken defense. A mistaken defense. Look at verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? When he he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me. And for yourself. So Peter's failure was a mistaken defense here. Of course, Jesus corrects him. And this is the last of the three failures. And this one is, is done by Peter here, all by himself. Interestingly enough, I think this one's also coming as a result of a lack of understanding. Which is why Jesus had to correct his thinking. Let me kind of explain what's going on here, in case you don't know. Uh, there's, there's a number of things we're not familiar with, like the various measurements or the coins that are used here. You need to understand something. When the, here's the apostles. They, they've come from the very northern, northern regions of, of, of Israel, way, way up north, above the Sea of Galilee. And they've come back to Capernaum here. And as they came back, the collectors of the temple tax approached Peter to ask if Jesus had paid the temple tax. Now, if you're not familiar with that, you need to understand that was something that had been instituted uh, in the Old Testament. And and interesting enough, in our passage here, Peter rises to the defense of the Lord. (laughs) He he thinks he's doing the Lord a favor, (laughs) as he often thinks he's doing. His words, though, unfortunately, were too quick and they were inappropriate. They were too quick and they were inappropriate. You'll see those, uh, the words drachma, drachma tax there. The, the two drachma tax was for the purpose of the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, everybody throughout Jerusalem was expected to do that. And it was based on Moses' instructions. You can read about those in Exodus chapter 30. However, you need to understand something here. Is that nothing in Exodus chapter 30 uh, says that the tax was to be paid annually It wasn't something that was supposed to be done throughout the whole life of an individual. So as far as the law itself was concerned, it was imposed one time when when a man turned 20 years old. And after that, if if they wanted to keep giving to, to the temple in Jerusalem, that was fine. But it was only on a voluntary basis. It was not something that God required them to do. You need to understand that. It was not God's requirement. But what we have going on here is, is, is basically they've, they've taken a one-time thing, God says in Exodus 30, and they've t- 
typical with the Jews. They, they turn it into a law which God never said was law. And they're heaping this pressure on, on the disciples, in this case, particularly Peter. And so Peter comes to, to Jesus' defense, and he doesn't need any defense, but he, he tries. And so as far as the law is concerned, it was a one-time thing uh, when, when a man became 20 years old, and then after that it was, it was only voluntary. And by the way, rabbis were exempted from the temple tax. So Jesus, of course, didn't have to pay this tax. And that's why Peter's defense is inappropriate. So what's the story about? Well, Jesus explains it when he takes advantage of Peter's inappropriate response, and and Peter comes in the house, doesn't say how Jesus knew. Of course, Jesus knows all things. It's possible he may have overheard, overheard, but it doesn't really matter how he knew, because Jesus knows all things. When Peter comes in the house, Jesus takes him aside privately to to explain something to him here. Well, what did he teach Peter? Well, Jesus taught that sons are exempt from taxes. Any of of you who are parents, do you you have your your sons pay a tax? (laughs) It's kind of a silly idea. Do do kings charge the, the prince to pay a tax? No, of course not. They make everybody else pay the tax. And of course, that was, that was typical of that day as it is today. And so he meant that since kings don't collect taxes from their son, well, guess what? We apply that to, to Jesus' realm. God the Father didn't require a tax of his son, Jesus Christ, either. Jesus didn't have to pay a tax. And so at the most basic level here, this, again, is showing the deity of Christ. It's showing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is exempt from paying temple taxes because he is the king's son. You see the point here? Well, again, there's some lessons we can learn from this passage. Number one, number one, you should strive not to cause offense. Don't strive not to cause offense. Go out of your way to not cause someone to stumble. Now, remember, Jesus is exempt from the temple tax. He doesn't have to pay the tax for many reasons, but he still pays it anyway, and and he says, in order not to cause offense. The Greek word scandalon. We get our English word scandal from that. But the the idea is that there's a lot at stake here. Jesus was willing to offend in some circumstances when it was necessary. Okay, please understand. It wasn't Jesus always went around everywhere, you know, striving not to offend people. That's not the case, okay? When it was necessary, he would offend them. You know, for example, when the money changers were in the temple, he he wasn't afraid of offending those guys, was he? You know, he makes himself a whip and he drives everybody out. I'm sure that was offensive. That's not how you win and influence friends, right? So understand, that's not what Jesus is about. But when it comes to unimportant cases, that's the difference, unimportant cases, as it was here, the right procedure is to act so as not to cause offense to other people. He didn't want to put that stumbling block in in someone else's way. That's what the word offense means in this case, to cause a person to stumble spiritually or to trip up, specifically in regards to the gospel of Christ. 
So Jesus was saying that none of us should do anything that might cause another person to stumble over what is spiritually important. Okay? The gospel is far more important than, than these other important things, like, in this case, paying a tax. Well, you say, well, how does that apply to me? Well, okay, all right, how does that apply to you? Well, okay, don't miss the first point I was making there. You should not strive to cause offense. But how does that, how does that actually work itself out in your life? How does the rubber meet the road? Strive not to cause offense. I'll give you a few examples. All right? <clears throat> For example, you do not have to approve of every law that our government makes in order to pay your taxes. All right? Oh, I know, this one hurts. Okay, believe me. I've, I was like, God, do you really want, to talk, want me talking about taxes? I really don't like talking about taxes. That's, that's an irritating subject. <laughs> okay. All right? Uh, there are a lot of things I disagree with our government about. Okay? But I pay my taxes anyway. I don't want to be a stumbling block to, to somebody else over something as unimportant as, as my taxes. The gospel is far too more is is far more important. You know, it, it doesn't make a very good testimony for us as Christians. You know, be thrown in jail because we're not paying our taxes and say, "Well, why are you here?" Well, yeah, that's kind of weird. Oh, well, l- let me talk about Christ. Now, that's not going to go over too well. I'll give you another one, another example. You do not have to approve of everything our church does in order to support it. You know what? I don't approve of everything that our church does, but I'm going to support it anyway. All right? Don't that, nitpickers destroy churches. You know what a nitpicker is? You know the, the person looking for little little bugs, right? All right? That's horrible. That'll destroy a church. It's very divisive. Okay? You don't have to have all your eyes dotted, your T's crossed and you don't have to, that's why we purposely put in our church constitution in substantial agreement. You don't have to agree with everything. I even disagree with myself sometimes, so join the party. Right? So you don't have to prove of everything to support a church. And, and okay, let's let's apply this to your neighbor. You know, your neighbor might do things you don't agree with. You might strongly disapprove of something your neighbor does to you or someone else. But you know what? Sometimes you just need to overlook those things so that you can be an ambassador for Christ to them. Okay, again, if you, if you want to be one of those obnoxious Bible bashers, you, you just destroyed your opportunity to witness to them. And that's the sort of thing Christ is talking about. I don't know whatever that is, okay? You know, you, know, I, I've, you ever seen that, you know, the, the show where, where neighbors, the show on TV where, you know, these got, they got these neighbors who are just obnoxious. All right, you don't want to be one of those. You don't want to find yourself on one of those TV shows. All right? You just destroy your witness in the process. You do not want to be a barrier to someone hearing the gospel. I've heard of that happening so many times. I've had conversations end with people, oh, well, you know, I don't want to listen to you, man, because of, and then they start naming other Christians, and they're just not interested. You don't want to be one of those. Number two. Oh, this one's going to hurt. It hurts me. Christians should pay taxes. Christians should pay taxes. All right? Now, Jesus' words here, now I'm saying this because his words seem to reach beyond just the Jewish tax 
to the temple in Jerusalem. And I say that because if you look at verse 25, his illustration about the kings and their taxes, verse 25, doesn't just mention tax. Notice there's another word in verse 25. You see that? It's also, there's also a word toll. So you've got tax and toll. Toll refers to local taxes that were, collect, or that were collected by, um, well, collected by guys like Matthew. Remember Matthew? Matthew Levi was a tax collector. Okay? He was the, he was the guy collecting the tolls. All right? So he's sitting at you know, a city gate or whatever, and, and as people come in and out doing their, their business or whatever, he'd be, collect, he'd be collecting the custom um, local tax. That's the toll. All right? But the other one mentioned there, the tax, that's your, the head tax. It was based on a tax roll. It, they would have this list of who's supposed to be paying the taxes. Okay? Two different things. And so this suggests that the principle of paying taxes expen- extends not just, not just to the temple tax, but to all taxes. And, and that's backed up by Scripture. So we need to remember a statement is coming from uh, one who used to be a tax collector here. <laughs> Matthew Levi was a tax collector. All right, let's look at a few other scriptures that back this up. I mean, because I know, I, know, I know what you're thinking. Because I, I think this too. Hey, what, what if our government is corrupt? What if our government is corrupt? You know, I don't need to pay taxes because, you know, if you think your government's corrupt, you know, I don't like how they're going to spend God's money. Okay, that sounds very spiritual. What did Jesus think about that? Well, Jesus said that taxes, even to the evil Roman Empire, should be paid. You say, where's that? Well, look at Matthew 22. It's on the screen here. Matthew 22, verse 17. Here's the, the, the first part. The Pharisees are speaking to Jesus, and here's what the Pharisees said. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. It's a day's wage. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What does Jesus think about paying taxes to evil governments? <laughs> Jesus believes in paying taxes to evil governments, even someone as evil as Caesar. By the way, the text limits the authority of Caesar. Caesar does not have all power and all authority. <laughs> Only God does. And so it, it's limited since the, the state has no right to take from God what belongs to him. In fact, you, you see Jesus do that. He divides Caesar and God's part up there. So Christians need to resist the state if it tries to do that. Okay? Now, I'm not saying go and, go and kill people. That, that's not what Jesus is saying, all right? But, but we can, within peaceful means, resist the state when they step outside their bounds, their God-ordained bounds. They have their part, God has his, and they have no right to God's part. All right? And, and when they come after God's part, by all means, you know, do, sign petitions and submissions and go talk to your MP. Do, you know, whatever you can within peaceful means. But at the same time, this also establishes the legitimate authority of Caesar. Of course God has authority, we know that, but so does Caesar, so does our government. 
So do prime ministers, MPs. They have the right to collect taxes. Whether you like it or not, that's the right that God has given to them. And in fact, the Apostle Paul took this position as well when he was speaking to believers in Rome. Look what he says on the screen here. Romans 13, verse 7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So, those are just a couple examples of what Scripture says about paying taxes. And it's clear, hopefully, that all Christians should pay taxes. Well, of course the government does things we don't like. Of course the government is not going to spend God's money wisely all of the time. All right? That's a given. All right? We don't need to argue about that. The government does a lot we don't like. But it also does a lot of good from which you and I profit, okay? It's very easy for us to grumble and complain. We only want to, you know, is your glass half full or half empty? Well, for many people, it's, it's half empty. You know, only look at the negative side of things, all right? Think of the positive things. I'll give you some examples. If you're, if, if you're one of those negative people, I'll give you some positive things, all right? For example, your taxes go to support the police and the court system that administers justice, well, we can debate the level of justice, and if you're thinking that, I understand, okay? <laughs> but, but there is a justice system. As weak as it might be, there is one, all right? Your taxes go to maintain parks. They go to maintain food inspectors. You can thank God for that. Man, I got really sick when I was in the Solomon Islands. You go to these third world countries, you got really poor, you know, food-healthy standards, very easy to get sick. You can thank God that usually is not going to happen here. All right, so we got these food inspectors doing great things. Uh, we, we're paying for our motorways, all right? Uh, you, you can be thankful you have a motorway to drive on. Imagine what it was like if we didn't have any motorways. Uh, it'd be, it'd be, like, be like what I have to put up when I go to a third world country. You know, you probably... You, don't, you can pretty much assume you're not going to get to your destination, right? Vehicle's going to break down because the road's horrible, bridges are washed out, huge potholes, you know, the list goes on and on. I mean, some of the bridges I went over in the Solomon Islands were just made out of dirt, so every time there's a huge rainstorm that comes through, you know, the, the bridge gets washed out. I mean, I saw, I saw trucks and cars on, on the side of the bridge. It was scary, man. They were way down in the ravine. So that's, that's pretty much what you can expect. We don't generally have to deal with those kind of problems in our first world countries. Taxes go for those sort of things. Taxes go toward the firefighters. If you, you, know, you catch something on fire, you know, quick call and they can deal with it. But I think out of all that, I mean, we could keep going and going. To me, the important thing is that taxes make possible a society, a stable society where you and I can perform our duties of being ambassadors for Christ. We can be a witness for Christ. We can, we can, as we did a few weeks ago, we can go and have a sausage sigil in the park and introduce Christ to them. Or, uh, you know, Hamish and I, we go, we go on Waikato University, we go and witness for Christ and tell people that they're lost, they're in need of a Savior. Stable societies, we're, we're able to do that sort of a thing. You know, I've never really been concerned about, you know, 
having some lynch mob come after me and getting killed. Now, it might happen to me one day in New Zealand, okay? I'm prepared for that. But at the moment, that's not really, I'm not concerned about that. We have a stable society where, where hopefully we can share the gospel with people. That is the blessing of a stable society. Now, of course, with that comes many curses. We get materialism and so forth. We get a lot of hard, hard ground where the word of God just never takes root in them. So, of course, with that comes also other problems. So maybe we need to pray for some unstable society sometimes. But that's, that's certainly one of the greatest blessings of that. Well, I began the study by talking about coming down from the mountains. Sometimes we find ourselves in mountaintop experiences. Those are wonderful times when we're with God and God's blessing and working in our lives and in other people's lives and our church and in our country. But inevitably, there's going to be failures. That's just the way we are. Because we're sinners, we live in this fallen state, and as long as we do, there will be failures. So coming down from the mountains is something you and I cannot avoid. You don't always get to live up in those mountaintop experiences. That's one of the beauties of heaven, my friend. Okay, Look forward to being with Christ, because sin will be gone, everything's perfect, and you get to live on the mountaintop forever and ever. But until then, you're going to have valleys in your life. And as far as failures are concerned, we do not need to experience them so often. We're going to experience them, sure, but, I mean, do we have to experience them all the time? No. Fortunately, Matthew 17 has provided some pointers to the way you and I can overcome our failures. Let's just quickly go through four points here, okay? Just four quick pointers coming from Matthew 17. Some of this is review. So how do you overcome failure? We looked at this one last week. Number one, listen to Jesus. Remember when God the Father said, Listen to my son, Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Have you done that this week? Listen to Jesus? Listen to him the way he has chosen to reveal himself? That's what we need to do. By the way, there is a time to speak, but we need to listen to Jesus first. It's not you coming first, it's God coming first. It's... It is only as we do that that we'll be able to say anything of any value to anybody. You've got to listen to Jesus first. Number two, take up the cross. Take up the cross. We like the glory, don't we? We love the mountaintop experiences. Oh, but taking up cross. Yeah. No, that's just, that's just twist the meaning of the cross to mean something else, something that's a little bit harder, easy, sorry, easier to understand and experience. We love the glory, but we're not so enthusiastic about this cross-bearing business, are we? Woo-hoo. But yet Jesus told his disciples that there is no crown without a cross. That's what Jesus did. He, he knew he had to suffer. He knew that was the case. The glory wasn't coming till later. He had to suffer first. And that's the way it is with us. The glory is to come later, my friend. That's coming. But for now, we must suffer. We must take up the cross. Number three, know your weakness. Know your weakness. It, it, one of the reasons we fail so often is because we, we, we fail to plan, number one, but we fail to recognize our weaknesses. You know, somebody told me, 
several years ago, the, uh, the definition of insanity. You ever heard this? The definition of insanity, you know what it is? It's where you do the same thing twice and expect a different outcome. Right? You heard that? Don't ever do the same thing twice and expect a different outcome. Right? That's insanity. All right? Know your weaknesses. Go to God with your weaknesses. And don't just keep doing you know, the same thing over and over again, expecting it to have a different outcome. Well, one, I think one reason God allows so many of, of us to have failures, all of us to have failures, I should say, is so that we'll depend on Him. So that we'll recognize that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We must abide in Him, because He's the vine, we're just a branch. Number four, keep your faith personal. Keep your faith personal. You realize there's no substitute for personal faith in God. No substitute, okay? Now, I know, I know, you, you may immediately, as soon as I say, I say an absolute... No substitute for personal faith. You're, you're going to start thinking of other things. Oh, wait a minute. What about this? What about this? All right? I know. Some, some, okay, here's one of those things I thought of. Well, is Bible doctrine important? Is Bible doctrine important? Of course it is. <laughs> ah, that's a no-brainer. But knowledge alone saves nobody. Okay, you can answer all the questions on who wants to be a millionaire. Right? You can win the million dollars, but that's not going to save you. Christianity does not consist merely in just collecting information. It's not about you going to, you know, doing all ten books in BLT and saying, cool, now I get to graduate, I know everything. No, it's not what it's about. It's not about Bible doctrine. It's about a relationship, a personal faith. Well, what about serving God? Isn't serving God important? Of course it is, yes. But the Bible says, you and I are ordained to good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. Of course we have to do good works. Of course we have to serve God. God created you for that purpose, amongst other things. It's one of the ways you can bring Him glory. But the most important thing is we, we get to know God. God's revealed Himself in creation and in the Bible. That's how you get to know Him. And so we need to develop this personal relationship with Him And then we're able to serve Him in a way that actually will bring Him glory and honor. So, listen to Jesus. Take up your cross. Know your weaknesses. But above all those things, above all those things, keep your faith personal. It's that relationship with God that's actually going to keep you from failure.